I talk to Alaskans, we just don't want a senator who's bought and bullied by the D.C. establishment. We want someone who represents our Alaska independent voices. U.S. Senate candidates debate campaign funding and abortion rights. From Alaska Public Media, this is statewide news on Alaska News Nightly for Friday, October 28th. Good evening, I'm Wesley Early. Also tonight, Ketchikan residents move one step closer to accessing rural subsistence status. What does Ooligan taste like? We're losing that and that connection. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. If you find yourself asking, what's next? The University of Alaska Anchorage can point you in the right direction. With over 100 fully accredited degree programs and certificates to choose from, plus resources to guide you through your academic experience. Your future is in your hands. Whether you're starting over or taking your career to the next level, discover what's next at UAA. This message sponsored by the University of Alaska Anchorage. The policy differences on abortion rights between Alaska's three candidates for U.S. Senate were clear during a debate last night. Incumbent Republican Lisa Murkowski, Republican Kelly Chewbacca, and Democrat Pat Chesbrough appeared together for debate for the state. Chewbacca said she supports a national ban that takes effect, quote, sometime in the second trimester. Murkowski said she supports turning the abortion rights from the Roe v. Wade case, which the U.S. Supreme Court recently overturned, into law, but with some limits, such is letting medical providers with personal objections opt out. Chesbro says she's pro-choice. I think it needs to be up to the discretion of the individual, not anyone else. I think it has to be a very difficult decision, and I think we need to let people make those decisions on their own. Murkowski and Chesbro's interactions were collegial. Chewbacca and Murkowski were much cooler. Throughout the debate, Chewbacca only referred to Murkowski as the incumbent. Chewbacca painted Murkowski as ineffective, supportive of Biden administration initiatives she called extreme, and buoyed by outside interests and money. When I talk to Alaskans, we just don't want a senator who's bought and bullied by the D.C. establishment. We want someone who represents our Alaska independent voices. Murkowski said her record shows her commitment to Alaska and that third-party political groups are behind any candidate's control. She fired back at Chewbacca. Frankly, she's been gone from the state for 28 years, and she's out of touch with Alaskans and what Alaskans expect and want. Alaskans want results. They don't want partisan political rhetoric. Alaska Public Media, KTOO, and Alaska's news source produced the debate. Meanwhile, salmon was a hot topic in Wednesday's debate between candidates for Alaska's sole U.S. House seat. And when asked what they would do to address declining salmon stocks, all candidates pointed to bycatch as a continued threat to salmon and crab stocks across the state. KDLG's Izzy Ross has more. Republican and former Governor Sarah Palin began her answer with a shout-out to Bristol Bay and her time in the region. Near and dear to my heart, the fish issues um, having for years set netted on the Nishigak in Bristol Bay. She said the state is doing a good job with management and that it follows the maximum sustainable yield mandate outlined in state law. But she said the federal government needs to step up. It's the feds who lack the enforcement, the bycatch laws that uh, too many people are getting away with, especially foreign trawlers. They're not allowing those salmon to get back to where they need to be to spawn. We need to bust these people who are doing these illegal activities. You take their vessels, you take their gear, you take their permits, and um, we start teaching them a lesson. 
Bycatch is the accidental harvest of species that fishermen are not targeting. Tribes, communities, and small boat fishermen in western Alaska have been particularly vocal with their concerns about whether and how bycatch has contributed to declines in their salmon returns. Democrat and incumbent representative Mary Peltola, who previously directed the Kuskokwim Intertribal Fish Commission, said she wants to ensure there's funding for research on both the state and federal levels. But she said managers can't wait for those results. We've got to take precautionary management. We cannot allow metric tons of bycatch of juvenile salmon, crab, and halibut to be thrown overboard every year. Um, this has led to a very devastating collapse of not only salmon but halibut, and now we're seeing it in the crab industry as well. The Bering Sea snow crab fishery will be closed for the first time in its history this winter as the number of crabs has dropped by nearly 90% over the past four years. Bristol Bay Red King crab populations have also declined drastically, and that fishery will be closed for the second season in a row. Republican candidate Nick Begich agreed, trawl bycatch should be addressed immediately. And he pointed to the Magnuson-Stevens Act, the main law regulating fishing in federal waters. One of the late Congressman Don Young's goals was to renew the Magnuson-Stevens Act. In September, the House Natural Resources Committee passed a revision of the act, adding in restrictions on bycatch and naming climate change as a threat to federal fisheries for the first time. Begich wants to proceed with caution. I think that we need to be careful about how we go through our Magnuson-Stevens uh, Act reauthorization and making sure that we're, we're putting precision language into the act that is actually going to demonstrably improve the sustainability of these fisheries. Libertarian candidate Chris Bai said he saw just three king salmon on the Chena River while working as a fishing guide this summer. He also agreed bycatch is an issue. But just throwing it back doesn't solve the problem. I, I honestly think we need to get industry more involved in reducing their catch. Otherwise, it's not going to be there. It's only a renewable resource until it's all gone. Bai also suggested divvying up seats on the North Pacific Fishery Management Council by region rather than race. That council decides fishery policy in Alaska's federal waters. Peltola advocated adding two Alaska Native seats to that council as part of the Magnuson-Stevens rewrite. Early voting is underway in many communities across the state. Election Day is November 8th. In Dillingham, I'm Izzy Ross. A report released by a U.S. House committee says backers of a proposed copper and gold mine in southwest Alaska, quote, tried to trick regulators by pretending to pursue a smaller project with the intention of expanding, end quote, after the project was approved. The report focuses on the proposed Pebble Mine. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in 2020 rejected a key permit authorization for the project. That decision has been appealed by the Pebble Limited Partnership, which wants to develop the mine. The project is in Alaska's Bristol Bay region, which is known for its salmon runs. The report from Democratic representatives Peter DeFazio of Oregon and Grace Napolitano of California makes several recommendations, including environmental review process changes. Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, for the first time since the late 1800s, students in Angoon build a canoe. We're still here and our community is thriving and our students and our, our children are eager to learn. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
Voting in the general election? Here are key deadlines you need to know. First, in-person voting begins on October 24th. Want to vote absentee? You must request your ballot by October 29th. Last is Election Day. You must vote or submit your ballot by November 8th. Visit elections.alaska.gov to learn more. This message sponsored by the Alaska Division of Elections. While many people were visiting Anchorage last week for the Alaska Federation of Natives annual convention, a few were also in the state's largest city to talk about how marine mammals are managed. As Emily Schwing reports, almost every member who attended the two-day meeting raised concerns about the lack of federal dollars to do even baseline wildlife research. The Indigenous Peoples Council for Marine Mammals, or IPCOM, meets twice a year. Scientists from federal agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fishery Service join members to discuss marine mammal populations and subsistence resources across the state. And IPCOM members say the federal agencies aren't doing enough. It, it's 100% a lack of funding um, and a lack of staffing on the government's part. Raven Cunningham is the Marine Mammal Program Manager for the Chugach Regional Resource Commission. In her region, which includes Lower Cook Inlet and Prince William Sound, a once-threatened sea otter population is now thriving. That's having big impacts on the shellfish people gather for food. Cunningham says stock assessments for subsistence resources and population surveys on sea otters haven't happened in nearly a decade. Our take as subsistence users, we can't look at how that's affecting the population or whether we need to take more or less. That was news to U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan, the only member of Alaska's congressional delegation to attend the meeting. He says federal management agencies are supposed to be counting animals like sea otters regularly. Part of that is just their basic job, right? That the Fish and Wildlife Service is supposed to be doing that already. Um, where the funding can be a little challenging is um, for these commissions. So you have the Alaska Eskimo Whaling Commission, you have the Walrus Commission, you have the Nanook Commission. IPCOM is made up of 18 marine mammals commissions and councils from across the state, and they all receive federal funding. But Sullivan says getting his colleagues in Congress to fund those groups is an uphill battle. Those are just such unique Alaska-oriented issues that you got to make the case with your colleagues. Ben Piana sits on the Alaska Nanute Co-Management Council, which represents 15 Alaska Native tribes, that harvest polar bears for subsistence. We have all these different groups, and without the proper funding, it feels like we're just um, being checked off as uh, a government function. Piana, who's from Nome, says members want to create effective and cooperative management plans, but they don't even have basic information, like population counts, for the wildlife they want to manage. If we don't have the funding to do it, we, we just can't. And that gets a little bit frustrating when we are meeting to serve a purpose, but then we can't fulfill our duties. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declined to comment, but during IPCOM's meeting, a scientist with the agency told members they were out of money for just about anything. He says any funding for things like population surveys and stock assessments would have to come from Congress. In Anchorage, I'm Emily Schwing. 
After a lukewarm reception, the Southeast Alaska Regional Subsistence Advisory Council voted unanimously to advance a proposal that would open federal subsistence hunts and fisheries to Ketchikan residents. The board's vote triggers a two-year study of the proposal, which would officially designate Ketchikan as a rural community under federal subsistence regulations. The decision came after hours of public testimony advocating for the change. KRBD's Reagan Miller reports. For decades, Ketchikan has been considered an urban area by the Federal Subsistence Board. Ketchikan's tribe has been pushing to change that. Tribal officials submitted a proposal to redesignate Ketchikan as a rural area in May. Trixie Bennett is the president of Ketchikan Indian Community. She told the board at a meeting in Ketchikan that the designation is one step toward fixing things that are out of balance in the community, particularly for Native residents. I felt like I should come here and sing a morning song because I feel like we're going to be in mourning until... We have this balance in our community for our people. Judy Leesk Guthrie has lived in both Ketchikan and Metlakatla. She says the ability to hunt on federal lands would keep her family from paying for pricey processed foods at the store and from having to travel far away for a hunt. It's a lot of work. It's sometimes a lot of days away from our families. But at the same time, it means that we don't have to go to Safeway and buy meat or fish. Tony Gallegos is the cultural resources director for Ketchikan's tribe. He voiced frustration that, with Ketchikan listed as non-rural, residents can't collect ooligan from the Unuk River. Ooligan is a subsistence staple. It's an oily fish commonly used as a source of fat. What does ooligan taste like? Uh, uh, it, 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 we, we're losing that and that connection. But the council wasn't immediately open to the idea. Councilmember Louis Wagner Jr. of Metlakatla voiced concern for how Prince of Wales Island would be affected by an influx of hunters. This is really serious. It's going to put a huge impact on the villages and especially Prince of Wales. And Goon's Albert Howard agreed with Wagner. He said he was worried about the already struggling deer population on Prince of Wales Island. We're just opening something uh, that we may pay a price for later. But after a parade of speakers delivered hours of passionate testimony in favor of opening federal subsistence hunts and fisheries to Ketchikan residents, the council unanimously voted to move the proposal forward. Councilmember John Smith of Juneau said he'd been convinced it was necessary. And I hear that uh, Ketchikan, just from testimony, that they need this healing. So I really believe this is really important. Councilmember Harvey Kitka of Sitka also supported the proposal. This is just a small baby step, and it's going to take a long time for it to, to come about. Brent Vickers from the Interior Department's Office of Subsistence Management told the council that the tribe's proposal met all requirements to be considered by the federal board. Bigger questions, like discussions about what makes Ketchikan rural and why residents should have access to subsistence opportunities, will be handled at later meetings. The full analysis takes two years, during which OSM will hold a public meeting here in Ketchikan where people, tribes, and organizations can comment on the rural character of Ketchikan. The council wrapped its three-day meeting on Thursday. Rural designation proposals are considered in two-year cycles. Ketchikan is the only Southeast community seeking that designation this cycle. Moving the proposal forward is a big step, but changes won't start happening until at least 2025 when the federal board is slated to take up the issue. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. A special dugout canoe was dedicated in Angoon this week. It's the first one built in Angoon since the late 1800s when U.S. military forces attacked and destroyed the village. Students who helped carve the canoe say the project helped them see their own resilience. KTOO's Yvonne Crumry has this story. 
Master carver Wayne Price and several teenagers are pushing a long wooden canoe on a wheeled platform. It's bright red and it stands out against the gray, rainy morning. Some of the teens are wearing Crocs and others are wearing regalia, blue robes with form-lined fish beaded onto them. Little kids in bright purple and yellow coats are lifted into the canoe and pushed along like they're in a parade float. The view on this day 140 years ago was very different. Everything along this waterfront was in flames in 1882 when the U.S. Navy bombed the village, burning their clan houses and food stores, destroying their fleet of canoes, vital for fishing and hunting for food. The Daishitan and Kutsnuwu Kwan people were left for the winter with only one boat and no shelter. No one knows for sure how many died that winter. Many of the families in Angoon today are the survivors. The U.S. Navy has never apologized. I am very, very proud of both uh, my, my teammates that helped me with the steaming process and as a community. Just proud to finally have this new beginning. Shigane Kyle Johnson is a high school student in Angoon. He helped carve the new canoe, or yak, for the community. He and five other students fasted for a day when they put the boat to the test, adding hot rocks to it and letting the steam expand the wood into shape. It's called steaming the yak open and it can often make or break the work. It's a lot easier to learn about our culture and our traditional ways when it's hands-on, like carving a paddle, for instance. His mom, Kukish Tla Chenera Johnson, teaches Tlingit in the schools and helped with the canoe project. She says this history shows the resilience of the Kutsnuwu Kwan. We're still here and our community is thriving and our students and our, our children are eager to learn and eager to carry on that part of our culture. For Kyle, this project has made him hungry to learn more about his culture. I hope that we start leaning more towards our traditional ways of uh, hunting and gathering and living off the land. In the spring, the yak will be given a name and launched into the water for the first time with Kyle and several of his classmates aboard. In Angoon, I'm Yvonne Crumry. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. If you are a hunter, birder, or outdoor enthusiast, the U.S. Geological Survey is asking for help tracking the bird populations in Alaska. The USGS manages a nationwide bird banding program, and every year, thousands of birds are marked with small, numbered leg bands. If you see, find, or harvest a banded bird, please report the band number online at reportband.gov. The information provided will help inform how bird populations may be changing. This message sponsored by the USGS Alaska Science Center. If you find yourself asking, what's next? The University of Alaska Anchorage can point you in the right direction with over 100 fully accredited degree programs and certificates to choose from, plus resources to guide you through your academic experience. Your future is in your hands, whether you're starting over or taking your career to the next level. Discover what's next at UAA. This message sponsored by the University of Alaska Anchorage. Like many school districts across Alaska, spikes in energy costs have Unalaska City Schools looking at a major budget deficit. 
I am anticipating a five to six hundred thousand dollar budget deficit if nothing was to change in the fuel costs. Superintendent Jim Wilson presented a budget update to the Unalaska School Board last week that includes a half million dollar anticipated deficit. This is the biggest deficit he's seen in his 10 years as a school administrator and likely one of the largest the district has ever seen. He says teacher contract negotiations also played a big part in increased costs this year. There's been some inflationary um, costs that have affected everybody. And so I think it was wonderful that we were able to recognize that for our employees. Um, you know, but the reality is that wasn't factored into the budget. And so, you know, that results roughly in an additional $140,000 deficit um, that we weren't anticipating back in January, February. In March, the budget was originally estimated to have a roughly $200,000 deficit. That would have been nearly balanced by one-time funding from the state, Wilson says. The district was expecting a reduction in state funding due to a drop in enrollment this year. Still, he says there is enough money in the school's fund balance to cover the current deficit, and the district has filled some of its funding gap with federal COVID money. But it's not a permanent solution. Can we sustain a $500,000 deficit? No, we can't. Um, there will need to be some adjustments made to the budget um, in most districts. Um, as you lose a significant percentage of your student population, you start to look at, you know, again, everything across the board from supplies to staffing to travel and try to figure out areas where you can find efficiencies um, to be able to have a balanced budget. He says the budget committee will have to make some serious and long-term decisions about where to make cuts when they meet next year. Wilson says the district's audit results and an official budget revision are expected to be presented at the board's November meeting. Wrangell students could soon be riding around on the island's first electric school bus after the school district was selected to receive federal funding. As KSTK's Sage Smiley reports, the district was selected to receive nearly $400,000 from the Federal Environmental Protection Agency to purchase a zero-emission vehicle. The EPA has announced the recipients of $913 million in funding for school districts across the country to purchase electric or clean energy school buses. Wrangell Island's public school district is the only district in Alaska selected for first-round funding. Superintendent Bill Burr says the district applied for the federal program back in August. Wrangell schools contract with a local private company, Taylor Transportation, for bus service, but the district foots the gas bill. Since we have hydroelectric power, the, the cost would be less to run an electric bus than it would be for fuel. Two other Alaska school districts, Sitka School District and Valdez City School District, are both on the wait list for EPA clean bus funding this year. Both districts applied for nine buses apiece. Burr says Wrangell is more of an ideal location than some districts up north for an electric bus. The temperate islands of the Tongass don't get to the sub-zero temperatures of communities on the road system or the interior. As well as we don't have the range that many school districts have where the buses would be driving long distances. Wrangell is an island, so there's only so much road to drive. Plus, there aren't that many students. The whole district is served by two bus routes. The electric bus is projected to cost $375,000. The rebate will also include up to $20,000 to install proper charging infrastructure. And part of the deal is that Taylor Transportation will need to get rid of a bus. The plan is to sell or dispose of one built in 2005. Clean bus rebates aren't new. The EPA has had a program under the 2005 Diesel Emissions Reduction Act, says Seattle-based EPA spokesperson Suzanne Skadowski. 
But she adds there's more assistance available now through the federal bipartisan infrastructure law passed earlier this year. What's happening now is we've just gotten this big infusion of infrastructure dollars that are really going to help kind of supercharge this effort because a lot of schools want the newer electric school buses, and they are very expensive. In total, the EPA reports the initial round of funding this year will go to purchase 2,463 buses throughout all 50 states, Washington, D.C., as well as several federally recognized tribes and U.S. territories. And the agency says it plans to award $52 million more to other school districts throughout the country over the coming weeks. In Wrangell, it's not totally set when the new electric bus will make it to the island, but to get a rebate from the EPA, it'll have to be purchased within six months. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. Bethel youth are going to the polls this week. It's part of a citywide effort to raise community-minded citizens. KTOO's Claire Strempel joined Bethel students at the ballot box and has this story. There's only one question on the ballot. It's up to Bethel students to pick the sign that will mark a local playground. Today, um, we're going to be voting with Sharpies. City clerk Lori Strickler explains how the vote works. She's talking to a couple dozen middle schoolers at Bethel High School. You're going to use the Sharpie to fill in the bubble next to your choice. Okay? So that's your election. She set up voting booths and the city's ballot counting machines on campus. It looks like the real deal, except the backdrop is yellow lockers and classroom doors. There's some gum snapping from the crowd, but everyone's paying attention. The students grab ballots and take turns in the polling booths set up in the school's foyer. Then they line up to feed their votes into the ballot counting machine. Thank you. Yeah. Here's your sticker. And then put it through that. The city's goal is to make youth in Bethel aware of voting and how impactful it can be. If the community isn't voting, they're not sharing their voice. This election may not seem as circumstantial as the upcoming general elections, but Strickler says they're actually related. She says kids can bring a little voter awareness home to their families and maybe even spur the adults to vote. Having conversations about elections within the household will help encourage the adult voters to look into what's going to be on the ballot, to learn more about the candidates that are on the ballot and the issues that are on the ballot, and then them the, themselves go out and vote on election day. Nearly 19 percent of Bethel voters turned out in this year's local elections. That's down a little since the pre-pandemic years where up to a third of the population might vote. Back at the high school, the students are game. Everyone votes, and the stickers are pretty popular. I'm 12. I'm 12. It'll be a while before Hannah Jaffet and Angela Simon can vote in a general election. Five more years. But they're already considering whether or not they'll go to the polls. Maybe. Maybe. And a few students even grab the grown-up election materials that Strickler has for them to take home. Can I get information for the voting? Yeah, totally. Um, have you asked. Thank you. Do you want a sticker? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Could I get one also? Yeah, totally. Uh, Adult elections are Tuesday, November 8th this year. Early voting for most Alaska precincts started October 24th. In Bethel, I'm Claire Strempel.
And that's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. If you missed any of tonight's stories, we're online at alaskapublic.org and wherever you get your podcasts. We had reports tonight from Jeremy Shea and Emily Schwing in Anchorage, Izzy Ross in Dillingham, Regan Miller in Ketchikan, Maggie Nelson in Unalaska, Yvonne Crumry in Angoon, Sage Smiley in Wrangell, and Claire Strempel in Bethel. If you want to send us a news tip, question, or comment, email us at news at alaskapublic.org. Our audio engineer is Dave Emmert. Katie Anastas is our producer. And I'm Wesley Early. Have a great weekend. Alaska News Nightly was made possible by the Westmark Fairbanks Hotel and Conference Center, offering guests hot breakfast, Wi-Fi, and the Red Lantern Steak and Spirits Restaurant. Reservations at westmarkhotels.com. If you are experiencing domestic violence or feel unsafe, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is here for you. Call 1-844-762-8483 or visit strongheartshelpline.org. This message sponsored by the Council on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. This is Statewide News on Alaska Public Media.